I wouldn't want an easy dog again because I wouldn't have evolved at all. You're listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 53 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm so excited for you to hear from our guest, Meredith May, author of the book, Loving Edie, How a Dog Afraid of Everything Taught Me to Be Brave. I have shared on the podcast before about my dog, Nino, who is the most shy and fearful dog that my husband, Tim, and I have brought into our home. And you can actually hear Tim and I discussing about Nino as part of the Shy and Fearful Dog Roundtable that we did as part of episode 17. And then we also had episode 20, where we talked with Brittany, who was the dog mom to a very fearful dog who works with a dog trainer through her job and what she was able to learn. And so we actually welcomed Brittany and the trainer Maria on that episode and had a really informative episode about working with shy and fearful dogs. So this topic is something that is definitely very near and dear to my heart. And if you happen to listen to these last couple episodes of the podcast, where we had the roundtable discussion about having dog fights in your home, about the proper way to introduce new dogs to your home so you don't set yourself up for dog fight situation, I thought it was very interesting that some of the themes from that roundtable conversation that we just had carry over into this episode with Meredith also, and particularly about our expectations. And you'll hear about how Meredith had these two really amazing golden retrievers in the past named Layla and Stella. Stella especially was like such a rock star who just wanted to meet everybody, was like the easiest dog ever. And Meredith's expectation was that her next golden retriever would be like that also. But she was wrong. (laughs) She was very wrong. And what I loved so much about loving Edie is just how honest and vulnerable Meredith is and how willing she was to say, you know what, I had all of these expectations and I was wrong. And at one point, Meredith even says that she wrote the book and read it and thought, I don't really like my character. (laughs) And I thought that it just takes somebody to be so courageous and brave, like, like it says, how this dog taught me to be brave, to even be able to say that about yourself and to put this out into the world and and expose, you know, your mistakes, expose the wrong things that you thought to the world. And I just admire that so much. So I think you're going to love this conversation. Meredith's going to tell us all about her unconventional childhood and and how that shaped her thoughts about animals and sharing her life with animals and then about how her dogs Layla and Stella had come into her life and what that taught her about having a dog and then we get to Edie (laughs) and Meredith like I said she's so honest about all the mistakes that were made along the way but she really did her and her wife Jen really have done everything that is possible to work with this dog from consulting with trainers and veterinarians and behaviorists and reading all the books and trying all the things like you couldn't have asked for people to do more. And eventually they found their way. There were some scary times along the way. Um, But what's most important is how all of this affected Meredith, her outlook on dogs, her outlook on life, her outlook about herself, And I just hope that we can all be so lucky to have the love of a dog in our life that'll impact us in the way that Edie has impacted Meredith. I'm so excited for you to meet Meredith May. So we are here today with author Meredith May. Meredith, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Let's talk about our dogs. Yes, I'm so excited. I have so much to talk to you about. This book is amazing. Loving Edie. 
Uh, I always love to just start out by talking about your childhood. And, you know, because I never grew up with pets, this was all such a eye-opening experience to me when I got into my 20s that these dogs can change our lives and affect our lives. And I never expected that. And so I'm just always curious, like, what was your, I, I know from the book, you had a little bit of an untraditional uh, childhood, but what were the role that animals played in, in your growing up life? Well, I was raised by my grandfather in Carmel Valley in California, and uh, he was a big mountain man in Big Sur and a, a well-known beekeeper down there. So, uh, and the reason I was raised by my grandparents is because my uh, parents split when I was very young. I was five, and my my father was stayed on the East Coast, and then my mother relocated me and my younger brother into her childhood home, which was my grandparents' house, uh, even though my grandfather was a step-grandfather, wasn't her biological dad. And my grandfather really took over as my parent. Uh, my mother was, was a depressive, and um, she sort of relinquished parenthood. So he took us under his wing and really taught us to love creatures, <laughs> mainly um, stinging honeybees. But he also always had a dog with him who rode in his pickup truck down to his bee yards. And it was always a little dog, like a dachshund. And so I remember uh, Rita, the black dachshund, and Tina was a brown dachshund. And, uh, you know, it, we played with the dog. We we loved his dogs, but they but they we're always like his dog, but I guess growing up that way, we assumed everyone had a dog in their house. That's just what you did. So, but this was a time when like dogs were outside dogs. Um, the Tina or Rita could come into the kitchen, but he'd trained them not to leave the boundaries of the kitchen. So they only had like one room in the house. So they were kind of like sidekicks, not, not the way, um, I am today about my dogs or it's a family member, <laughs> but, um, he just, he taught us to, um, respect, uh, all sentient beings, respect the earth. Don't kill anything unless you're going to eat it. And, you know, he taught us to really respect the land and the interconnectedness of all creatures, you know? Oh, and I forgot to mention my grandfather also brought some feral kittens home for my brother and I. So he taught us how to train them, uh, to tame them. And so we did have cats as well. So he put the foundation in for sharing my life with animals. So then you, you get older, you go to college, uh, you went into journalism. And when you were out on your own, was that when you were like, oh, I have to have a dog? Well, I didn't realize until I left home at 17 to go to school that I felt weird without a dog in my life or uh, a pet, I guess I should say. In college, I was on the rowing team and the coach had a, a little cattle dog. And so that was sort of my fill-in dog because that dog was at every practice and every rowing event. And if anyone's listening who's been on a crew team, you know that the, like that's what you major in, not whatever subject you're <laughs> studying. I mean, you spend so much time. Um, so I got my dog fixed that way. And then after college, I had kittens uh, in my little basement rentals that I was uh, living in. And eventually a friend of mine, when I finally moved into a rental that was a house that had a yard, a friend of mine was looking to um, find someone to rescue a dog abandoned in a divorce. And so, of course, I said yes. So I I've pretty much had animals off and on intermittently, but like seriously, since I adopted that dog at 27, I've had a dog ever since. And which dog was that? That was Layla. And the owner showed up in a van and opened the back doors and pulled out this severely obese golden retriever with just a rope around her neck. And the only story I got is that um, the poor thing was left in a backyard while the owners were divorcing and neglected. And a neighbor who collected food for a church 
felt so bad for Layla that she would throw whole loaves of bread over the fence <laughs> for her, like trying to do a kind thing. But the dog was really large. It, it looked like uh, it looked like a pig, you know, like the shape wow. of a wild boar, you know, just. So that was Layla. And, uh, you know, we just started walking together and exercising together and she slimmed down. And I remember I was working as a reporter at the time. And I remember early on, like the first week I had her, I came home from work one day and she was sitting on my front doorstep and somehow she'd gotten out of the yard, but she waited for me (laughs) right there all day, I guess. And I knew right then that she, she was a good dog and a loyal dog. And I, you know, secured the fence. It never happened again, but, um, she was, she was a good girl. I loved her. And then you had Stella who sounds like such a rock star. Mm-hmm. And then when Layla passed, she was 11. And, uh, at the time I was, uh, in a relationship And uh, she and I went out immediately and got a golden retriever from a breeder. And this is the first time I worked through a breeder. But we did some research and this person um, had been in the business a long time and and was careful about bloodline. And we came to look at the puppies at her house and checked out her operation and it was clean and safe. And she also didn't let you, there were, I think there were like 11 puppies. She didn't let you pick which one you wanted. She interviewed you and found out all about your life and your daily life and your home life. And then she chose the puppy whose personality was going to fit your life oh, wow. the best. And I remember at the time thinking, well, that's kind of controlling. But, you know, I didn't know anything about anything at that point. But I'm glad she did. And we took home Stella, who... uh was, you know, Golden Retriever Central Casting, just happy every day, loved people, uh, loved meeting people. You could take her to restaurants, you could take her to parades, you could take her to construction sites, like nothing scared her. And she just, she had this way of walking through the world, like it was her stage. And she was like, the drag queen under the spotlight. (laughs) I remember one time, you know, a little boy and his mom came up and asked if they could pet the dog. And this little boy was just learning words. And the mom was saying nose, ear, and and touching the different parts of Layla. And he was copying his mom. And then the little boy says, eye. And he pushes her eyeball. Oh my. Like her, her wet eyeball. And she just sat there. So that's the kind of dog Stella was. She was she was so much fun and I had no idea what an easy dog she was. I, th- <laughs> I thought I would I thought one it was just the breed. Golden retrievers are supposed to be like family dogs, easygoing, and I also thought I was just an excellent dog trainer. Like I just had the mojo or something, you know. I took it very um selfishly personally. <laughs> And then Edie came along. And then Edie. And and by this time, uh, I'm married. And, you know, married, let's see, um, it would be four years. And my wife, Jen, has never had a dog. I mean, she lived with Stella for a few years and really liked Stella. I guess Stella was like uh, the warm-up. But uh, when... Stella passed, my wife just wanted, you know, a break so that we could do whatever. Well, I don't know. She just wanted a break. And it took about a year of me uh, gently persuading her that we should get a puppy. And I finally wore her down. And she was anxious about puppies in general because she, her childhood was also very difficult with a very um, tyrannical stepfather who never allowed her to have a pet and she would bring home strays cats and one time a puppy and the stepfather would um, torment the animals and in in some cases just make them disappear under suspicious circumstances. So it was, it was really traumatic for her. And I think that was part of her resistance. I really appreciated how much you kind of dive into your background and your wife's background and kind of 
examining like how we kind of get got to where we are today about how do we feel about animals and i i really thought that was something special about the book like it's not just like you know a how to have a, a fearful dog it's really like examining kind of where everybody's coming from and where everybody got their expectations from and uh you know, I, I really love having those kinds of conversations. And so th- that's why, you know, your book just really spoke to me so much. Uh, you know, like I always say, I was a reluctant dog owner because I never really had dogs growing up. And the only dogs I was ever exposed to, like I had this one friend and every time you went over the house, the dog would pee on your foot. <laughs> Ooh. And then I, I had this boyfriend and, you know, they would just let the dog run around their woods and I'd come over there, you know, a teenager, like trying to look all cute. And then this dog would jump on me and get mud all over me. And, you know, and so I thought dogs were like these muddy peeing, like obnoxious mm-hmm. things, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that because, you know, I am at heart a memoirist. And so, you know, I didn't want to write just uh, a dog book. And I didn't want to write um, a self-help book for um, reluctant dog owners. Or, <laughs> um, and I do think that in order for the reader to understand my reaction and Jen's reaction and how we're affected differently by Edie and then how we resolve it, um, it, it would sound kind of flat and two-dimensional if you didn't understand the why behind it. So that was really intentional to try to explain how the three of us are influencing each other and learning from each other. Absolutely. So tell us about, about finding Edie. Cause it sounds like you were, you know, trying to do the responsible thing and maybe, maybe a little impulsive, but responsible. <laughs> and, and in the other thing I just appreciate, I'm a big rescue advocate. All my dogs have always been rescue. And I think sometimes there's a, a misconception that, you know, rescue dogs are more likely to have these traumas and these horrible backgrounds or fears or phobias. And, and, and that's why you should always get a puppy. So you're, you know, you're always the one like kind of making those decisions. But, you know, I thought this was just such a, maybe unfortunate in some ways, but, you know, an example that, Mm -hmm. you know, dogs are all individuals and they all react to things individually. And it kind of doesn't matter the the when, where, why background, you can have them and do everything right and do all your research and read all the books and do all the things and and still kind of end up in a situation that was not what you expected. <laughs> I know there is even an, a direct uh, dialogue for me in the book where Jen, uh, Jen, the scene is Jen suggesting we rescue an older dog and not go through the puppy craziness and and I say that exactly because that's what I used to believe. I said, oh, gosh, no, you know, the dogs have been through trauma. That's why they're in the shelter. And you're going to have to you're going to have a dog with issues and it's going to be difficult. And if we get a cute little baby puppy, we can just mold it from the beginning and it'll it'll understand our life and it'll fit in seamlessly and da 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 And, you know, what's funny is I've had a little criticism from reviewers uh uh, readers on the book because I went to a breeder. But the whole point of my book is to show you that I kind of made an uneducated uh, error in thinking about that. So yes, you know, we w- the way we got Edie was very impulsively because my wife was trying to put the brakes on and slow me down. And that only made me like more crazy and um, impatient. And so... <laughs> We were taking a walk at a very uh, popular dog park in, in San Francisco without a dog. And it was just sad because no one was talking to us. We were like ghosts and it just wasn't, it was just making me miss Stella even more. So we were walking back to the car and this man was approaching with a little golden that looked exactly like Stella when she was that age. And I just fell to my knees and, and was hugging this dog and it, it pro- very inappropriately. And uh, <laughs> anyway, he told us the name of his breeder and I called immediately and the breeder said he might have some female pups in a, a month or so. And then we went on a big trip to New Zealand. And then when we came back, uh, we're not even out of customs yet. I'm like, honey, let's call the breeder. Can we check? Do we have <laughs> And, you know, I sort of caught her on this travel sort of euphoria moment. She's like, okay, 
I got a hold of him and he said, yeah, I have three girls, but I have people coming to look at them this afternoon. And we just raced from the airport straight to his house, got there first. And then I, like my, it turned into just a, a competitive thing for me. I just wanted to get there before the other people. And uh, I felt like this was my one shot. My wife was in a good mood and we just like picked one. He showed us the parents, the mother, and I just sort of glanced at her. Okay. Didn't ask any questions just and scooped out of there with the dog. So then we had a whole new situation on our hands. <laughs> well, you know, one of the words I wrote down in like huge black letters in my notes here is expectations and how we have these expectations based on our past dogs or dogs that, you know, we've known in our life or even sometimes I've known people anyway, like from a dog in a movie or a TV show that's Yes, they're they're very well trained. That's why they're on, you know, TV. Mm-hmm. You can't have that kind of expectation unless you're putting in that same kind of amount of training, you know. And and so I just was thinking just what a you know, you had all these expectations that this dog was going to be like Stella, be like your past dogs, and then <laughs> I know. I put so much pressure on this little creature. Like I needed her to prove to Jen that puppies are awesome and that Meredith was right. (laughs) I needed her to complete our family because this would be the first dog we got together, you know, and it it would take our relationship onto like the next level as we're, you know, jointly caring for a vulnerable creature. And so, and then I just needed her to make me feel good, which is why I had the other two dogs in my life. I think if you come from a difficult childhood, you know, that undying loyalty of a dog, it fills something that you super need and didn't get as a kid. And so dogs had always been there to make Meredith feel better. And when all of a sudden Edie shows up, terrified of practically everything and in unable to function, all of a sudden I need to make her feel better. And at the beginning I would, I completely resisted that because that was not my plan. And she was making me look bad, (laughs) you know, with my wife and, you know, in San Francisco, there's the dog culture is, is huge. I mean, there are statistically more dogs than children in San Francisco. And so when you move through the world with a dog in San Francisco, you are, have an instant ticket to this subculture, right? And you're invited to dog parties and, you know, Corgi Con on the beach or the, you know, rooftop cocktail party at the Wag Hotel or whatever. Like you, everywhere you go, people stop you and they ask you a million questions about your dog or, you know, it's just, I I wanted that back. And I could see quickly that a dog like Edie is not going to give that to me. And so I had a lot going on in my mind about I need to fix this dog and fix this dog pronto. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and what, what were some of the behaviors, you know, like when were you first kind of like, Oh, this is, Mm. Oh, this is not what I expected. Yeah. Uh, we enrolled her at a puppy play date at the SPCA and we show up and it's in this huge warehouse separated into three sections based on size of dog. So she's a large breed. So she's with the large dogs. And when it was time to unclip, you know, there's like six or seven dogs in each section. All the puppies go running together in a big scrum and mine goes hightailing for the door in the opposite direction, drooling, panting, shaking, eyes like wide as a whale. And, uh, I like, I've never seen puppies run in terror from other puppies. I thought, Oh, what, this is something severe is happening with our dog. So that was the first clue. And, uh, so we enrolled her in uh, puppy training classes and it took her a while to even go into the room for the classes. She eventually warmed up, but, as part of the class, you teach them to walk on leash indoors. And then we would try, we at home, we would try to practice just taking her around the block and we never could do it because she would, something inevitably would scare her. She'd freeze up and 
pull back to the house. So traffic, skateboard, bicycle, bird, garage door opening, a bag floating on the wind, uh, a loud noise, another dog barking, a person walking by. I mean, she like, she's has this, uh, environmental sensibility. She needs quiet, calm, nobody around to, to function. So the way, the way that we experience this, right, is so we always have these rescue pit bulls and it's really important to us to have like the pit bull ambassador dogs, the dogs that can, you know, go anywhere, meet anyone, yeah. put like a good face, have people have a positive experience. And our, our old gals, uh, Lucy and Kalua, they were our great, you know, ambassadors. I have my dog Penny here is snoring next to me. Um, I literally found her in an alley in Baltimore and she jumped in my friend's Jeep and she's been my best friend ever since. And, you know, she loves everyone and everything. And then we get Nino and he is terrified of people and uh, he's okay with my husband and I, but he doesn't really want to meet anybody else. Mm-hmm. And that you know, we had a little bit of like a mourning period <laughs> of where we had to be like, oh, we thought we were going to have this dog. We knew he was like a little fearful, but we thought it was something we could work through. And then really realizing how he shut down and the extent of this is, oh, we don't, we're not going to be able to have this dog that we thought that we were going to have. You know, he's, when we're walking around the neighborhood and kids want to come up and pet him, you know, we say, oh, you can pet Penny. And Tim just kind of keeps going, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's, uh, you know, that getting uncomfortable with having to advocate for, for your dog, because, you know, you have, you have to speak up and become their defender. And and I know you, you touch on some of that too, but yeah, sort of having this like morning of, of, oh, I thought I was going to have this experience, but that's not what I do in fact have. <laughs> yeah, I mean that was what I had to finally let go of. I mean, I I went through this period of, of learning uh what not what Edie has, but k- trying to get an understanding of how her brain works and why she's doing what she's doing. And um we c- the woman who uh ran the puppy class is highly licensed as a behaviorist. So we hired her privately to help us work with the dog and understand. And then I read everything I could find uh, about fearful dogs and consulted some veterinarians who uh, prescribed uh, Prozac. So Edie takes Prozac every morning. She also has backup Xanax. And I discovered some methodologies that help her. Um, She's really good with uh, soothing music affects her, but like a the floral calming sprays do nothing. You know, you just have to kind of find out. I just found out there's this whole world with different tips and techniques and products uh, for dogs like ours. And so I went through this period of, I'm going to find the magic bullet and then I'll have the dog that I want. You know, um, I learned a lot, but what I ultimately learned is like, no, 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 no. I've got to alter my expectations and I have to alter my thought about what, what's being taken away from me, you know, because yes, we cannot take a walk down a busy sidewalk in any city or small town in America, (laughs) but she's a great hiker. You know, she likes a quiet secluded trail and I like to hike and I didn't do it as much with my other dogs because we just went everywhere and I would combine them in with my errands. Right. You know, so just changing the mindset about what, what your dog can do and what your dog can do for you and what needs to be different. And to your point about advocating, the way I advocate is when people come to the house, they always reach out for her head and want to pet her because why she's a golden retriever. But I say, you know, she's very shy. She's very friendly and curious, but you have to wait for her to come to you. She will uh, come to you if you ignore her and and she will eventually, you know, but people don't want to be snubbed by a cute dog, right? Because <laughs> it makes you look bad, right? But I just tell them it's not you, it's her, you know, she's, um, you know, and sometimes when I'm out on a hike and someone will come by and say, can I pet your dog? And I say, I really wish you could, but she's, it's, she's anxious, but thank you. Anyway, 
you know, that was, uh, was something I, I, I noted too, was about kind of like, how is this like a reflection of us? And, and I think you had even said like, well, I always would make a point of saying like, oh, I've had other golden retrievers before, you know, and you feel like you're, you have to be like, look, like I'm not a newbie. I'm not doing everything wrong. Like it really is this dog. Yes. I mean, one amazing outcome of, um, bringing Edie into my life is I've, finally learned that it's not the Meredith show 24 seven, you know? And I kept saying to people and they're like, Oh wow. Why do you think she's shy? Everyone says, is she a rescue? Everyone asked me that. And I say, no, you know, and I would always take it as a reflection that I'm doing something wrong. You know, it must be my fault. I'm not training her properly. I'm not giving her the right environment because I used to have those, uneducated thoughts when I would see other people with dogs like this, when I had super dog Stella, I like, Oh, that must be really bad uh, for you. I'm so sorry for you in my mind. And I think, but gosh, you know, get a handle on it. Teach, you know, train the dog, work with the dog, you know, just really uneducated. Cause I had, you know, I hit the lottery with both my dogs before Edie. Although now I would say I hit the lottery again. It just took me a year or so to figure that out because (laughs) Edie forced me to slow down. She forced me to, you know, think about a calm environment. She, um, she gives me a good excuse to say no to a lot of stuff and stay (laughs) home. But also, no, seriously, uh, she, she actually um, forced us to leave the city earlier than we had anticipated. I mean, our plan all along was when Jen retired, she's a, she was a lieutenant at San Francisco police. Then we would relocate back to my hometown in Carmel Valley. And so, but that wasn't going to be for two or three or four more years. And we were not ready, but we started looking anyway. And then, found something in two weeks. Like, uh, so we lived apart for a year. Um, she would come home on weekends, but that was a sacrifice we made because we literally were becoming stuck in the house with our dog. So that, thank you, Edie, we moved six months before the pandemic. (laughs) So there's a lot of beautiful things this dog has done for us. And I now feel like I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want an easy dog again because I wouldn't have evolved at all. One of the things I wrote down that I loved um, was your quote about the human canine relationship isn't all about the human. Yeah, that's like- and I just thought, oh my god, that's so perfect because it's very true, and they they help us with having a difficult dog with Nino. It's like. It helps us celebrate the baby steps and, you know, appreciate the small victories and having a new appreciation for taking things at, at their pace. And you talk about like, oh, I was like a perfectionist and very achievement oriented and, you know, and having to kind of confront some of that in, in yourself. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's such a great just metaphor for life in general, right? Like, what are we going to do when things don't go our way? What are we going to do when, you know, something doesn't turn out the way that we thought it would, you know, maybe we had an expectation, maybe it was a reasonable expectation, but it doesn't always mean that that life is going to play out that way. And then what are you going to do about it? Are you going to get mad and, you know, Mm -hmm. just be angry and lash out and feel like a victim to this circumstance? Or are you going to evolve and, you know, try to learn more skills, evolve? It's just, it's such a, just a perfect metaphor, I thought, for, for different things I've faced in my own life, as well as with my dog. But I don't know that I would have seen it if it wasn't for the dogs helping me see it. <laughs> oh, I I really appreciate that because, you know, no writer who writes about their dog and and eventually we all do because we like run out of ideas. <laughs> We're like, oh, <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but no book that's a quote unquote dog book is really just about the dog. It's always about the relationship with the dog and how the dog changes the writer. Otherwise, you know, they would be really boring books because, you know, (laughs) but yeah, I was, I was a type, I wasn't even a type A, it was like a type triple A, you know? (laughs) And um, the funny thing is I didn't quite understand 
what I was writing when I started this book. I, I just spoke with my agent. I said, you know, I've got this idea. I have this, you know, gold. She knew I had a golden retriever, but I said, you know, it's re- she's really, really anxious and it's really affecting our lives. And she just said, oh, great. Yeah, dog, go for it. All I had to say was puppy and yes, write about it. But I, you know, I kind of thought I was going to just write about the experience of how we fixed Edie and it was going to be more instructional um, and, and on the like dog shelf in the, in the bookstore, not the memoir. And when I finished the book and I reread it, the funny thing is like, I didn't really like my character. I was like, wow, you know, (laughs) she's really, um, she's really like, a perfectionist and she's really like not getting it, you know? So it's funny that like my own reaction to my own self in the book was like, she, wow, she really needed to, to learn some stuff and get somewhere. And, um, I wouldn't have wanted to be friends with a person like that. So uptight. So, uh, you know, I laugh a lot now, a lot more than I used to. And I think that, the experience, like to your point, the experience of having this dog has made me realize that I can take care of somebody's needs before my own. Um, this is sort of pushing my uh, motherhood button because I don't have children and my mother was not so good at it. I worry that I am inherently not going to be good at it. And so I think that's part of my resistance to a dog like this. But Edie has shown me that I can do it. And that I'm okay at it, and I kind of like it a little bit. So that that's something I don't think I would have learned any other way. Well, you know, I really did just want to, you know, commend you for. I mean, you really did do all the things. Like nobody could have expected you to do any more than you know than what you have done with with trying all these things, consulting with different people, reading all of these books, seeking out additional information, and um, you know, I, I it, that just. Like, that's exactly the kind of person I am that like, I'm going to find all of the things. There's just information I need to have. And, you know, as soon as I find it, everything will be okay. And I'll figure Mm -hmm. it out. And, you know. (laughs) Oh, don't forget. Yeah. Don't forget the dog psychic, too. Yes. Yeah, we tried that. We have worked with animal communicators also, um, especially with our our fearful guy. Um, actually, you know, I had an interesting experience the the first time. I don't think I've ever shared this on the podcast before, but uh, you know, we we adopted Nino and uh, we had this animal communicator and, and we whose like information had been passed to us. And the first thing she said to us when we called her is, "What's going on with his stomach?" Hmm. And unbeknownst to us when we adopted him we just had gotten him at the shelter he had eaten a car tire like a steel belted radial car tire and we ended up having to have surgery for him to get all of these pieces of this car tire removed from his stomach and we did not know that and even once we spoke with her we were like oh i I don't know and it took a few weeks before he developed like this action or, or whatever mm-hmm. that resulted in the surgery. But we looked at each other like, there was something wrong with the stomach. I mean, that was literally the first thing she said to us. <laughs> Wait, he ate like a, a, not a toy car, like a car or like, a yes. whole tire? I mean, not a whole tire, but I mean, they removed, I don't know, like 15 pieces of <gasps> tire oh. from his belly. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. I mean, she was right. There was something going on with the stomach. I mean, I- <laughs> I'm glad like you, you were there. I mean, I'm glad, you know, the dog was with people who would take him to the vet, who would get that taken care of because he would have died. Yeah, it's, you know, I don't know if it's woo woo to feel like all of these dogs have ended up with us for a reason. And, you know, they have all been exactly what we needed exactly when we needed them. And there's no way I ever could have planned that or, you know, chosen that, but yet they've always been such great teachers for us in ways that we weren't expecting. (laughs) Well, I don't know if this is true with your shy one, but one thing I've noticed with Edie is every emotion is extra not just the fear. It's like, she's the most affectionate dog. She's the biggest cuddler. She's like the most, uh, 
amorous with her uh, toys, I guess we should say. <laughs> the, um, that stuff was cracking me up <laughs> with the basketball. Yeah. And the- <laughs> yeah, she everything is on her sleeve. Like she doesn't hide anything. And even her like frustration and anger at me, like she she's um, she's just I don't know. Do you have the same notice the same thing? So, yes, Nino is so in love with my husband. I mean, he likes me, too, but he's just so obsessed with my husband. And he's also the most communicative dog that we've ever had. He goes above and beyond to always let you know what he needs. If it's to go outside, if it's that his ball rolled under, you know, the coffee table, you know, I mean, he really, if there's, you know, a a treat or a piece of food that went under the sofa or, you know, it's like, he just goes out of his way to always let you know what he, you know, needs or wants in that moment. And that just has blown me away. Like I've never seen a, a dog go to the lengths to communicate that he does. That is the same exactly. And she's also, she has learned more words mm-hmm. than my other dogs. Like I can tell her to go get specific toys by their names and she will. It is, it blows me away. Oh, he knows. Yeah. He knows all versus bone. Yeah. And he, is kind of a little OCD with carrying his ball around Same. in his mouth. Yes. And and so if he takes it outside and drops it and he comes back to the door and I'll say, oh, you got to go get your ball. And you can see him be like, oh, that's right. And he'll go and run and grab the ball and come back. And it's just, whereas with Penny, I could tell her to go pick up something that she dropped. And she's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It sounds like we're talking about the same dog. Like she's, We call it her binky, but she's found this one ball that she really likes. And yeah, like we'll go out the door and we'll say, oh, you forgot your ball. She'll run back into the house, get it, come out. And then we continue on. Like it's, she's really into it. And I think what she likes about it is that, you know, she can communicate to us with it. Like I want to play with it. I need help finding it. It And she loves to get it stuck under the furniture on purpose. So then we like interact with her with the ball and it gives her this sense of agency that I think she doesn't. Um, have in her day to day because she has complete control over this thing. But my other two dogs were like, yeah, you go get it. You know, after a while, <laughs> like they're, I'm done fetching that, you know. And Nino, he'll even like make up games for himself where like the ball is hiding. Like it'll be right there, but he'll kind of like scrunch the blankets up or something and then kind of be like, oh, where did it go? And he's got to like dig it out of the blankets. And he, it's very funny. I've never seen a dog like create games for himself the way that he does, or he'll like kick it around like so- a soccer ball or something and be chasing it all around the house just in a way that that none of our other dogs have ever played. You know, it's like he, he can almost just like do it like be independent and do it himself you know it's oh yeah yeah yep same and we've tried giving her different ball but it's got to be this exact brand and this exact color the other ones she won't even doesn't like yeah so one of the things that I thought again was just such a huge like aha moment that I wish every dog owner everywhere had was about learning your dog's body language and learning how much they are trying to communicate with us. And so how did you have that aha moment? And then what was that like for you kind of looking back? Well, the woman who was our puppy school teacher and then our behaviorist, um, she was the first one to really explain to, to us what to look for. And I realized I had not, in hindsight, been hearing my dog trying to talk to me at all. And some of the things that Edie does with her body when she's starting to escalate is she'll, um, she'll yawn really wide like a crocodile and snap and then shake her head. Like the shaking and the yawning is she's okay. Now she's starting to get nervous and then she'll start drooling. Her tail goes down and then she'll, just stop and freeze and her whole body feels like wood. And then sometimes she gets what's called whale eye where she opens her eyes so wide you can see the whites around. And then pretty much if I don't get her out of the situation by then she will bolt. She'll flee like her flight in their fight or flight, her flight is off the charts. And so that um, 
were some of the scariest moments in the book is when she ran on us. And one time she ran towards a cliff and another time she ran into oncoming traffic. And I'll let readers find out what happens. Um, oh, I feel like there should be a disclaimer on this book. Dog does not die in the end. Because <laughs> I've had so many people say I don't read books like that because they're too sad. Right. Or they, they want to know. it. No, Edie's alive and well. There's a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, there's a happy ending. So those are the things that I never paid attention to before, especially the yawning. I mean, that's usually her first sign. and. I always knew that, you know, if dogs uh, duck their tails, um, that means they're scared. But this is more like when it just starts to go down and drag towards the ground, not like all the way wrapped around the body, but just if it's low versus if it's up. Um, it can be very subtle. It's very, very subtle. But yeah, and they're just prancing and, and, and trying to make a U-turn and all of that stuff. So we we know now like what what uh, situations will, will make her do that. And so, you know, we just modify and we have plan B's in case it doesn't work out. But over the years, we're getting her now, she's almost four. She can do a lot of things that she couldn't do in, in the book. So it's kind of exciting to see her progress. In fact, it's thrilling beyond belief, like you were saying earlier, like she can go through the dog door now on her own. I loved hearing about the the part about the dog door. (laughs) You know, it's funny, she still thinks about it, like she'll still stand in front of it and kind of rock back and forth. And then in about 30 seconds, she'll go through. I mean, she still has to think about it, but she's not, she doesn't need assistance anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And so I I really loved reading about your move and about where you live now. I mean, it just sounds so idyllic. Like, that's like my husband's dream, like scenario, you know, and, uh, and then at the end, when you start talking about the wildfires, I mean, I just, you know, I have like absolutely no frame of reference here on the East Coast, you know, what what that's like. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? That was that was really blowing my mind. Yes. Well, you know, Carmel Valley and Big Sur is wildfire territory. I grew up here. I remember wildfires, but I remember them mostly as concepts. They never came into town. But where I live now Uh, If anyone's familiar with Carmel Valley Village, it's a small village, 5,000 people, but I live even farther beyond that. You drive through the village and then you keep going another 20 minutes or so up to the top of a ridge that's 800 feet up. And so we are, um, we're uh, wildland. Um, We're right, we're backed up right by the Los Padres National Forest. So it's, um, it's sage and scrub brush and, uh, very and oak trees. It's an oak woodland and some of the most uh, ancient oak trees in the country. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's uh, we have mountain lions, we have bats, we have tarantulas, we have uh, bobcats, rattlesnakes, you know, rabbits. You name it, condors. It's gorgeous. But but the exchange rate for that is uh, it's very dry, and uh, we have wildfires. So almost exactly a year after we moved, there were a lot of fires in Monterey County. And there was uh, one in Salinas, which is about 20 miles away. And it had been burning for about a week or so. And so the air was really thick with smoke where I live, but we were not evacuated. But then another fire broke out a mile from our house and it was called the Carmel Fire. And it happened so quickly but it was so unnoticeable because what's more smoke and smoke, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that we uh, all had to evacuate in like 10 minutes. We, like the, the sheriffs didn't have time to even come up to our road and evacuate us. We were just neighbors calling neighbors saying, get out, get out. And I had 10 minutes to get out. And Jen was at Costco and she was texting me saying, should I get this kind of macaroni and cheese? And I'm like, (laughs) uh, get home now. So I just, I grabbed Edie. I grabbed our 19 year old cat Lulu. I grabbed a computer and a phone and a police scanner and just got in the car. And the, the main way out was blocked by fire trucks. So I had to go on all these back roads. Um, and police cruisers were passing me going the other way with lights and sirens and, smoke everywhere. 
And by the time I'd circled around back to where um, you could see our mountain range, it was all orange on top. And I thought, oh, well, there it goes. And um, so the upshot was uh, we were evacuated for three weeks. And when we got back, um, 17 of the 34 homes on my street were gone. Wow. Mine was still there. Um, but like uh, four homes, you can see, we, we're all on 10 acres. So we don't have neighbors like right next to us, but you can kind of see a house, you know. The four homes I could see from my house were all gone. Wow. So it was just some sort of miracle thing. I mean, we, we lost part of our trees and part of our fence and I have beehives and the fire stopped literally a few feet from the beehives and they were all still there. Wow. Um, I think part of the reason we survived is that, um, my wife cut, uh, she retired three months before the fire Mm -hmm. and moved in and spent those three months, uh, cutting a 150 foot fuel break all around our house by hand, just mowing and cutting and weeding. And we have a swimming pool and I, and the firefighters staged at our house. We also had purchased a pump that sucks the water out of the pool and shoots it through a fire hose. So I think we were a little bit tiny bit more prepared, but no, I'm not even going to say that because there are people who've been living here a long time who were more prepared than we were, did everything right, and they still burned because when a fire gets that bad, there were like fire cyclones happening and embers were flying everywhere. And it's just luck of the draw if an ember lands in your yard or on your roof or what. So since then, you know, some people are rebuilding, some people sold their plots, some people haven't decided what to do yet, but it inspired me to start a fire safety group in our neighborhood. And so I've been doing a lot there to help, you know, get the county to bring like a chipper to chip down limbs and burn limbs and just sort of get us together, get us to practice evacuation drills and just get a little safer um, and help each other get fire insurance. And so it's, it's been a thing. It's been a deal. Yeah. But um, the reason it made the book is because while we were evacuated, we were staying with a friend who lived near a lake and Edie finally learned to swim in that moment. And it was, it took everything away from our minds, like the pandemic, the fire, it just that our dog, cause we'd been trying to teach her for months and months and months but she went out to fetch that dang ball we were just talking about. <laughs> but it was just, it was such a relief to know that there was one way she could exercise, you know, cause it's kind of hard to get her out to places where there are no people. It was just really joyful. And it, it really drove home the point that uh, this dog has the ability to keep us happy. Like even in the worst of times. Yeah. And I can't let you go without asking about the bees. Uh, I really I'm going to read the honey bus next because now I'm just like so curious about the bees. And I, I actually have several friends who uh, are just kind of getting into this. And actually, our veterinarian, she uh, has hives also. And so I feel like this I'm going to use a terrible pun. This bee thing has been like buzzing around me uh, for the last like year or two. And, and so I'm just so, so curious about that because, you know, I look at it and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> looks so oh. scary. That's why you're attracted to it, right? That's the right reason. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I have four beehives here. I um, started beekeeping again in 2011 because my grandfather was um, getting frail and he could no longer lift the boxes because they can get up to 50 pounds when they're full of honey. So I thought, well, heck, what if I start and he can mentor me and, you know, he can still get some enjoyment out of it. So I've been beekeeping ever since uh, I, I started when I was San Francisco. And so I had hives on the roof of the San Francisco Chronicle where I worked, <laughs> which is really intriguing. And I got 72 pounds of honey that first year in wow. downtown San Francisco. Yeah. But it, it keeps me, my grandpa passed and, you know, it keeps me connected to him. I feel him when I beekeep. It's also very meditative. You have to move slowly um, so you don't irritate the bees and you have to, 
really watch them and monitor their behavior and look for their little tiny, tiny eggs in the honeycomb to make sure the queen's healthy. And, you know, it's something that my grandpa taught me as a little girl. And I just feel really happy and safe and loved when I'm doing it because it reminds me of being with him. And then also, you know, it's got the added benefit of, you know, helping the planet. So that makes it kind of valiant, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you should try it. I, I always advise people find a beekeeper who's willing to let you be their apprentice for the a year first to see if you like it and to, to learn what you have to do in the different seasons to keep those little buggers alive. And, um, you cause, cause like anything, it sounds really cool and sexy, but then once you get involved, it's like entomology and, um, right. farming and, uh, you know, a bit of a commitment. And so just see if it's, if, if you still like it after all of that, then I would say go for it. It's, <laughs> it's really pleasurable and uh, fulfilling. Yeah, I, I'm so I'm so fascinated. I really do want to learn learn more about this. Um, well, thank you so much for your time today. I'll make sure that we have links in the show notes so that everybody can get the book. It's such a beautiful book, and I I so appreciate you know your vulnerability to share. I, I saw in the acknowledgments you were even acknowledging Jen and your your wife and saying like thank you for letting me share of all of this, even though it's a little uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't know if that was <laughs> if that was something that you guys had to discuss, like how how, how honest are we going to be here? You know, (laughs) she, she, well, it's funny. I mean, she's a cop and I am a journalist. So her instinct is to, you know, uh, be private and mine is to tell everybody everything. So we make like (laughs) this like interesting yin yang, but no, she read everything before it went in. And, um, you know, I interviewed her mom and let mom read everything. Like people who are in my books, I let them read first before I turn it in to make sure there's no problems. I don't want to know after the fact there's a problem. <laughs> so, you know, in the beginning, some there were, we had some conversations about why I felt the need to talk about this and that. But I really ultimately let her decide if it was too revealing for her. And um, there wasn't. So, you know she she she's been through the honey bus and she knows what I do and what I do for a living and why I do it and she's seen the positive reaction and that there's a there's a higher purpose for being truthful in public yeah because I I really do it really felt like it really felt personal and vulnerable and like wow you know this really is the journey of emotions that you go on when you have a dog with an issue like this and to see it, you know, spelled out so wonderfully the way that you do. And so honestly, you know, like it really did like just strike this chord with me that this book is like therapy right now. And my other thought was like, oh, she's definitely had to have done some therapy before because <laughs> I've been doing it for 15 years and I, I see this, this process, you know? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, uh, and I have, you know, that makes me feel so good that you say that because, you know, I'm getting some email that, you know, people are saying, oh, you know, I've been getting really frustrated with my puppy. It's because of this. And now I read your book and I see that they're, you know, it's not their fault. They're really, they're not trying to be ornery or argue with me that they're really asking me for help and I'm going to calm down and try harder. You know, that makes me feel really good, you know, to think that maybe there was some bad human dog relationships about to happen that I prevented maybe, or, or, and also just to make people feel like it's okay. I think people with dogs like ours are feel a little shameful because we don't want strangers to think that we we're doing something wrong, you know, that this dog is like this because of something we did. And if we're more honest about it and talk about it together, we'll recognize it and be like, okay, that dog is neurodiverse. That's it. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. I I love it so much. We'll have links in the show notes for your website to where they can get the book. and, And I'm so excited for everyone to read it. Thank you, Erin. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, I feel like there's so much I still want to unpack after that conversation with Meredith. First of all, I loved this idea of dogs being neurodiverse. 
And that wasn't a word that I had thought of before, and she used it, and it's been rolling around in my head for the last couple weeks. And I, I really have trying to see Nino through that lens. And there's a term I've heard for people called HSP, which is highly sensitive person. And I think I actually fall on the high end of that scale. Um, you know, people who are sensitive to like sensory input and overload, like I don't always do really good in like a big loud crowd. Or I don't like a lot of loud noises, especially loud, unexpected noises. I remember one time Tim tried to take me to a gun range because occasionally he'll do that as like a hobby, go to the shooting range. And I basically had a panic attack from the loud noises. Um, the same thing has happened to me when I have to get an MRI. I've learned I have to ask for double ear protection because my ears are just so sensitive to that sound when you get an MRI. And it's just been interesting to have a label to put on it because I've just always been super sensitive to everything from uh, smells to textures, uh, foods. Uh, I... I definitely seem to be very prone to having some sort of like sensory overload or, or just uh, extremely sensitive to sensory input. So I was trying to think of, of Nino as, as maybe having this kind of highly sensitive reaction to things and he gets maybe overstimulated very easily. He's definitely like hypervigilant. But then, you know, Meredith put it so well about like her dog Edie has these big emotions and like Nino loves with all his heart. I mean, it's pretty much just me, Tim and Penny that he loves, but <laughs> we feel it and we know it. And uh, he, he has a lot of big feelings, as they say. And uh, I just really love this idea of, of realizing, you know, again, just all of our dogs are individuals. They're all wired a little differently and we can't expect one dog to behave a certain way just because another dog in the past or another dog that we know behaves that way. And it was just such a great reminder. And I really loved the idea that she brought up in this book and, and in our conversation about how we make judgments. We might see somebody having a tough time with their dog and, you know, we might judge them. Or if we are the person who has the dog, we might feel the need to say, oh, you know, he's not usually like this. Or, oh, you know, I've had other dogs before that weren't like this. And I hear a lot of that, you know, with moms and kids. And, you know, what does it say about you as a mom if your child is having a bad day or having a temper tantrum or, you know, that your child's behavior is always a reflection on, you know, how good of a person or how good of a mom that you are. I think as a whole, society has moved towards being more forgiving or understanding. Um, it doesn't mean every single person is. But I hope that that's something, again, that that everybody listening can just keep in mind that it doesn't take anything away from us to be kind, to give somebody the benefit of the doubt, uh, to keep our thoughts to ourselves. If we see somebody who's having a tough time with their dog, we don't always know what's going on with that dog, with that person on that given day. And uh, it takes nothing away from us to, to be kind, to maybe give them that benefit of the doubt and, and move away from reacting with judgment. And speaking of the topic of judgment, I know so many of us are from the shelter and rescue community. And of course, my heart will always lie with shelter and rescue dogs. And it made me sad, though, that Meredith said that she had gotten some nasty comments or, or critical feedback about people who were shaming her for having gone to a breeder. And I thought it was more admirable for her to kind of admit the way that she did in the book about, oh, she used to think that, you know, dogs that came from shelters may have had trauma or, or you know, flaws of some sort, but she's evolved past that. And I think that that's really the more important point to think about than to get hung up on whether somebody got their dog from a breeder or not. And, and I see a lot of that type of judgment online. And it always just makes me sad because, you know, shaming people into acting the way that we want them to doesn't ever really work. So I really wish that that we get away from a, a lot of that social media judgment about where people get their dogs from. You know, it's just so funny how we're all so different. I would never, ever, ever want to raise a puppy. I would always rather pick, you know, a three-year-old shelter dog that's already housebroken and has a stable temperament. So I knew what I was getting. No matter how cute they are, I would never want to deal with a puppy. 
I also love that Meredith admitted to working with an animal communicator. And like I shared with her, you know, that is something that we have done on a few different occasions. And to be honest, it's always been really helpful. We've only ever had one kind of negative experience, but the rest of the people that we've worked with have been really amazing. So if you're ever interested in working with an animal communicator, shoot me a DM, shoot me an email, and I'll send you the contact information for, for some of the more reputable people who I know who have been helpful to us. I'm so grateful to Meredith, you know, for first of all, writing this amazingly beautiful book, Loving Edie, How a Dog Afraid of Everything Taught Me to Be Brave, and also for for coming on here and being so open and honest and vulnerable and willing to admit her mistakes and share things that might not paint her in the best light. That is true courage and bravery as far as I'm concerned. And I can't let the episode end without mentioning a big thank you to my friend Russ May, who is Meredith's half-brother. And when I reached out to him and said, oh my God, is your sister the one who wrote this new book that I've been hearing about? He right away got me in touch with Meredith so that we could get her on the podcast. And if you're ever up and around the Bel Air, Maryland area, make sure you check out one of Russ's bands play. He's an extremely talented musician. And uh, if you've ever listened to the very first episode of the Believe in Dog podcast, Russ was one of the people that knew me back in my days of my angst-ridden teen years where I was wearing Doc Martens and way too much black eyeliner. (laughs) I just have a couple more things I want to mention real quick before we wrap up. First, this week, uh, the end of August, I've been celebrating seven years since the day I found Penny in an alley in Baltimore and bringing her home. Uh, She has just truly been my BFF ever since. Uh, Pretty much everyone I think that we've done in-person interviews with, have gotten to meet her. She's always by my side during my remote recordings. She's by my side snoring right now. I'm always wondering if you can hear her snoring on the on the podcast recordings. So I shared some how it started in 2015 versus how it's going in 2022 uh, graphics on Instagram. I also wanted to mention that I've been invited back as a speaker again this year at the Baltimore Humane Society's Pet Memorial Sunday, which will be coming up on Sunday, September 11th. So if you're in the Baltimore area, and maybe if you lost a dog this year, if you've lost a dog at any time that you would like to remember, the Baltimore Humane Society does this really beautiful event for Pet Memorial Sunday. And I'll have a link in the show notes for you if you'd like more information. And the final thing I wanted to mention is for any of my fellow dog health nerds who are listening, uh, Angela Ardolino, who you heard on episode 46 of the Believe in Dog podcast. Angela is the creator of CBD Dog Health and of the Your Natural Dog Company. Angela is hosting a free online event called Do No Harm, which will be on Thursday, September 22nd. It's free to watch, or I think there's an upgrade where you pay money and you can actually be on Zoom and get recordings of the information being presented. But Angela has gathered some of the most amazing holistic alternative veterinarians in the country. We're talking about veterinarians who have been practicing for more than 20 or 30 years who are not using any of the conventional pharmaceutical drugs. So if you've ever been curious about what alternatives are out there to antibiotics, to using steroids, to using pain medications in your dog, or to using Epiquil, that's a big one that I hear about for allergies all the time. Angela has gathered like the top people in the country to talk about what they're doing, how they're treating dogs uh, in a more natural and holistic manner. I'm super excited. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can sign up and I hope you can join us on September 22nd for the Do No Harm event. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. Make sure you check the links in the show notes so you can go pick up your copy of Loving Edie, How a Dog Afraid of Everything Taught Me to Be Brave by today's guest, Meredith May. Remember, you can always find me on Instagram at Believe in Dog Podcast with underscores or on Facebook at Believe in Dog Podcast. So until next time, this is Aaron Scott sending you hugs and belly rubs. Believe in Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.